Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Hi, on The Microscopist today, I'm joined by Michelle Itano, and we discuss how core facilities help bridge the gap between the people and technology. Finding that expertise from different ways has been... It is difficult, but also I think what's kind of fun about the job. Fossil hunting, as a kid. My dad um, was a trained theoretical physicist, but his hobby was paleontology. Obsessive crafting. I get kind of obsessed with them, so I can't start a project. Then I'll like want to do that constantly for the next 72 hours. And the importance of improving staff retention in core facilities. They need to have roles and opportunities for promotion and recognition of great work. And I don't think those exist currently. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, and welcome to this episode of The Microscopists. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by Michelle Itano from the University of North Carolina. Morning, afternoon, I don't know what time of day it is, but Michelle, hello. Hi, it's great to see you. Yeah, likewise, it's been a while. Uh, actually, I think I first met you through the facilities meetings, I think. And I think so. You were wearing your Chan Zuckerberg Initiative hat at the time. Uh, so do you want to explain exactly what you were funded by Chan Zuckerberg Initiative? So this is, uh, or do you want to explain what the foundation does and what they funded you to do? Sure. I really think it's a, a very unique funding opportunity. And it's been honestly um, very, I'm trying to think of the right word, but it, it really has changed the way I see that facility jobs have been viewed by many funders and others. So essentially what Chan Zuckerberg did is they realized that staff are typically underfunded in lots of these facilities. And because of that, we're not able to contribute to the research goals as much as we would like to. So they put out this call for imaging scientists and I was funded in the first round of that. And they all had to be housed or related to a facility. And um, you had to have some form of a project that was really career wide, how your job was helping to connect different people from engineers to students to researchers um, and figure out a way that we could help move that forward. And so what the grant actually does is fund my entire salary for um, five years. It's three years with a renewal time now. So fingers crossed for that one. Um, but it's really let me hire new staff. So I went from a one person core to a three person core. And that has just multiplied our impact already and made connections globally like this one um, and for other facilities and um, groups like Quarep and the Chen Zuckerberg Imaging Science Group as well, ABRF, all of those, I feel like it's enabled us to have more time to contribute to those types of networks. So the importance, you mentioned the staff and the fact that staff maybe isn't always at the right level. Uh, and I think we've talked briefly about this uh, only, only very recently. Uh, why do you think so many places are understaffed? In there, as you say, you can have four, five, six microscopes and not enough staff to actually even 
train users to use them, let alone help users to use them? I think this is such a tricky issue with microscopy because it's part of what we love about it, that almost anyone has some experience and you can come up and you can see something and you see data, right? But getting from there to being able to really pull out all of the information from it, I think can be something that not everybody appreciates how difficult that is, especially with large file sizes and things that can impact your image before you even acquire it. And so because there's an instant gratification process. I think that it can be confusing to some others when they're thinking about how to support it, what, what that entails and how intricate the education has to be on what makes the image and the biology, the sample prep that goes into that. And then how much happens after the image is acquired to be able to make sure make sure that the instruments are available to people, that they're well-maintained, but also that the data can become figures and can actually be published and interpreted properly. And so the time that it takes, besides just acquiring your image to getting that to something that is a finished product and getting users who are trained, is just exponentially larger. And so that requires more time, more experience, more one-on-one. -on -one. and making time for staff to do that, I think can be harder to calculate. It's, it's not as easy as just saying, this is the hours on the equipment. And so then you're getting into, you know, how is that consultation time? How is that uh, research impact valued and measured? And when that comes down to dollars for staff salaries, I think that can be a hard equation to calculate. Especially maybe because a lot of those staff are lost in the researchers evaluations yes. and missing the fact that there was a lot of support going into lots of different academic impacts yeah. uh, but it's what it underpins so actually I guess the academics the users need to be our champions for that to point out and and you know when they when they don't have enough resource we need them to shout we don't have enough resource and when the resource is delivered for them we need to make sure it's acknowledged and delivered for them you say you, you, you pan across sort of the engineering and everything else. How do you find that talking across disciplines? Do you find that challenging? Because there can be quite different languages across disciplines in the sciences. Yeah, I mean, I find that I very rarely feel like I'm in the expert in the room, right, in most of the communities I'm in. And there's something... Um, that kind of ties all of that together to me where I feel like I'm constantly learning from the people I'm meeting with. And either that's the biology that they're focusing in or it's the engineers who know all the intricacies of this camera or that laser. Um, but it's also a really fun process because I am constantly learning. And so I think that by taking that perspective and knowing that any person I'm speaking to I have as much to learn from them as maybe what I can contribute puts me in a different perspective. And so that makes it really fun because I know that I'm not that expert, um, but I can make connections between them and say, you know, that might be very different. Like the, we were just talking about people coming in and filming our facilities for outreach opportunities. And I found I had a lot in common with the videographer and producer because yeah. we, had we were dealing with large file sizes. And I was like, how are you doing this, right? How are you sharing these with people and getting feedback on live videos? And we had a really interesting conversation about that. And so finding that expertise from different ways has been 
it is difficult, but also I think what's kind of fun about the job. I've got to say, when it comes to file sizes, did you have a game of one-upmanship to see who had the biggest file size out of a production? Sorry. Yeah, I think he beats me still because I don't have the light sheet. <laughs> so um, while we we help support those and there is one on campus, that's not yeah. my instrument. Um, so he was like, well, this video of, you know, you all focusing is two gigs. And I was like, OK, fine, that that wins. Oh, right. No. But I, I remember going to a lab meeting once and one of my staff so I said, oh, people are going to have to look at data because I've, the, that last data set we just took off was 100 gigabytes. Yeah. And I laughed because the other the postdoc in the lab at the time said, oh, what do you mean? My, my over weekend one was one terabyte. <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh, they've just they haven't just gone up tenfold. They've gone up 100 fold almost overnight. Uh, fortunately, the instrument that was doing the terabyte per run has now crunched its data right down much more manageable. That was a label free uh, phase focused live site system. Was oh. very hungry on data where it's now it's all real time process. So it's really much smaller. So, so you said you're not, you'd never feel like you're the expert in the room, but you know, we're never going to be the expert when you've got a scientist who's really geeked in their engineering, the biologist really geeked in their biology, they're the experts there. But again, they would look at you and think, oh, but we're not expert in microscopy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say you're not only, you are an expert in the room, mm -hmm. but you're also the bridge. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I think core facilities are a really important bridge between different, even just life science and life scientist or engineer and engineer. Quite often, it's they come together at the microscope or with other core technologies. Uh, so you must like that, surely. I love that. Yeah. And it's my PhD advisor used to see all of these tools being built. And he was like, you know, one of our biggest challenges is where do we point that, right? And it feels like that's kind of our job every day is, you know, somebody will come in with an idea, but we have to pick the instrument that'll work best to get that goal or to refine it. And that I find really fun. It's, it's or even sometimes data they've already required and how can we really make that useful? Um, and seeing something where they're like, I had no idea we could measure it that way, right? And kind of creatively pushing the data to its limits. Um, or the instrument, I find that to be really fun. That is true. Uh, pushing an instrument to, to find the breaking point isn't always the best bit because when you get to that's the true. breaking point, that's really demoralizing. It's like, <laughs> no. Anyway, so what, what got you into this? If I take you back now to when you were really, really young. So I don't know, I, you sent some pictures. So this, <laughs> this, I like a lot of pictures. I said, yeah. This is you with archaeological artifacts. So my dad um, was a trained theoretical physicist, but his hobby was paleontology. And so growing up, and actually even while my mother was pregnant with me, um, they would go on fossil hunts. And we just went on one with now with my son and my, my dad as well. Um, so that was what we used to do growing up. And we would go to rock and mineral shows. And so um, my sister and I would do displays of the the fossils that we would find. And sometimes they were rocks and minerals or, or shells as well. Um, so that was my first scientific presentation, but it, it did kind of start early in our house and, and was really fun. Um, and it's fun to see that now go multi-generational. So, so when you were really young, what did you want to be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so when I was really young, I wanted to be 
a family practice by private practice doctor because one of my friend's parents that's what they were and I had learned I'd been interested in helping people and I was told oh then be a doctor right um, and I liked that and they had told me that they were private practice which meant that they kind of were also their own business owners and got to determine things in their own way and I thought that sounded cool um, and so that was kind of stuck in my head for a long time that that was going to be my goal, um, probably until I wanted to be an astronaut, but then so I was so too what short. Age, uh, <laughs> you say you were too short to be Yeah, they were one size fits all. I don't know if you even saw the women who were doing the spacewalks and they didn't have the suits yeah. that were the right size. So it's still an issue, sadly. Um, but I did get to the point where I looked that up. <laughs> the blokes can be tall and short and there's a slight range, but not huge. Yeah, because you also have to fit in that. It's like a jet fighter pilot thing. Um, you can't be too tall or you'll run into the commands on the top. I, I, I'm just looking through because I'm sure there's a photo of you. Oh, this is for your wedding, I think. That is my wedding. Just to give an idea of height. Yeah, 4'10". <laughs> so 10. not tall. Yeah. Yeah. Although for my family, if there's one up there of me and my family, I'm actually quite tall for my family. Um, but yeah, it's all relative. I do. There you go. That's right. I, yeah. I, 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 did, I did sift through the photos. You actually sent a <laughs> collection. So this actually is quite interesting because obviously, so this is your, your mother That's and father and your sister as well. Yes. Yeah, so my sister has always been one who I look up to an incredible amount. She's six and a half years older and actually in the UK now. Um, so she, they're living in London, um, but had been in South Africa and Greece. And she's the explorer in our family. And I just love her bravery. But yeah, and um, what are the then my mom and dad. Because you, you obviously got the two other pictures as well. So it's one of a newspaper cutting with you. Is that you climbing over a fence? So this is actually cute. Um, that was my high school science mentor. She's amazing. Um, Lois Abbott, who had um, her children and then went back and got her PhD and started running a lab on Drosophila wing development and genetics and developmental biology. And she let me as a high school student literally gave me keys to the lab and do research. And so when I graduated from high school, um, we did a senior scrapbook. And her page for me was like a scientific poster. And so that's what that one is. Um, and she wrote it for me going away to college, um, but in a scientific poster yep. format. So I loved that. That's super cool. And I presume the other one is a science exhibition. Yeah, so I was a science fair kid. I have not yet watched the documentary. I've heard it's a little too close to home, <laughs> but um, did the international science fair in high school and even middle school um, growing up and started, I think in elementary school doing science fairs. And I just loved it and loved the, honestly interacting at that point, it was a lot with my parents and later then with Dr. Abbott, um, but getting it, to communicate to the public and to my peers. And it didn't really matter what it was to me, um, but I did love that element of science early on and had a lot of opportunities in Boulder growing up to, to share science that way. So you, you took on science at quite an early age. So you obviously found your passion for science very early after fossiling and moving into yeah. science. So your undergraduate was in Washington? 
Yeah, so that was Washington University in St. Louis. Um, so in the Midwest, and I hadn't spent much of any time there before, but found that it aligned really well with my personality. It was a lot of access to opportunities. Um, and I would say internally competitive, everybody was very driven, but not as much external competition. And I really liked that. It was a very supportive environment to study in. And I did archeology span and biology. Um, and at the time was really convinced, I really at that time didn't wanna be a medical doctor, but wanted to focus in research. But archeology span always had a bit of my heart. Um, and maybe part of that was the paleontology background too, but I loved actually, you know, physically discovering something in the dirt. And so that was really fun um, and a good double major and possibly the hardest physical work I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. Actually, this, this is this is you working in the dirt. Yeah, that that was a dig. Um, my seed, uh, maybe summer after my junior year, um, and it was in Louisiana and had the biggest poison ivy I've ever seen. You had to walk around with a um, a shovel to, and machete to make sure that the snakes, you know, you scared away the snakes before you walked through the field and everything. So, so in the next picture, which is worth actually watching the YouTube if you're listening to it. <laughs> so, poison ivy, snakes. Are you yes. dead in this picture? I was, I honestly have never worked so hard, right? It was up with the sun, hiking through, digging through dirt if it was raining. Um, this was our lunch break. And my um, my advisor, who I still keep in contact with, still uses this <laughs> to recruit people to the dig. And I was like, I'm not sure that that's that recruiting, but it was so much fun. Um, it was also physically exhausting, but I felt like I'd really put everything into it. Um, so when I think sometimes that these days are hard, I think back to that time and it gives me a bit of perspective. Uh, digging around to work out what you wanted to do as a future, no doubt. It's a yeah. bad joke. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of good ones with archaeology. So, from, so you had the archaeology, you had the life sciences, but then you went on to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. And that was in? That was in cell biology. So, so those I guess you had to choose at some point. So you chose the cell biology over the archaeology at that point. I did. And I um, that was not a smooth choice for me. So I was convinced coming out of WashU, which was doing the thousand dollar genome and the sequencing era. And I'd come from Drosophila genetics. I was convinced that I was going to do developmental biology. I loved genetics. And that was the next big step for me. And so I actually went to... Um, a biology department because we weren't doing umbrella programs as much at the time. And I did my rotations in all developmental models. Um, and at some point I had to take a hard reverse. Um, I loved the questions and I didn't feel confident doing it. To me, putting things in that big of a picture and context just wasn't where my brain was. And so I had had some lectures on biophysics, which I hadn't really been introduced to as an undergraduate. And I did a hard reverse and I was like, I'm gonna do single molecules <laughs> because that I can measure, I can describe, I can feel confident about, and I'll let others make those connections to development and time and organs. So I actually switched departments from biology to cell biology to join my thesis lab. and. Um, 
had the support of an incredible mentor, uh, Ken Jacobson. And he was amazing. And I look back at so many different steps he did to help connect me to people, including core facilities, um, send me to work in other people's labs and really let me just discover what where my passion was. So that ended up being closer to the optics and the single molecule side. Um, and that was a time when all those single molecule methods were also really being developed and, mm. and coming out of incredible labs as well at the time. So you know, take from, from where you were there to now, you know, mm -hmm. you're still involved in research, but you've taken on the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is probably less about research, more about the connections and networking. Why, why? To, to almost taking a step, sideways step. It's still in research, but not direct research. Why mm -hmm. that sideways step? Is I it sideways? Could happened. be an upstep. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. And that's what I've tried to explain. I've been asked this by a lot of trainees too, as they're considering different career paths. And to me, it took a lot more self-reflection. I think I, I had been so driven to the tenure track and it took actually getting that application ready to send in and finally feeling confident that I had a good application, that I felt like I could build a research program if that was my goal. And then realizing that the day-to-day -day was not what I thought would bring me that much fulfillment. Um, that while I was interested in that research question, I was also interested in a lot of others. And so I started realizing what really got me going each day. And that was talking to people, problem solving, troubleshooting. And I was like, what job is that, right? What, what is that? And the fact that these jobs now exist that are building connections, that are finding that, how do we get through the bottleneck? I find that to be so exciting. And I didn't have as much exposure to that before. So I didn't know it was a possibility. And so the fact that I get to do that each day with different audiences, with students, with postdocs with PIs with engineers is really fun and I feel like that's the most common question that I get to spend my meetings on right is what is the bottleneck here and how can we break past that and that to me is different than if I was just running my own lab um, and it it connects to different types of communities which I find to be really invigorating too so yeah well, I'm in the same situation uh, yeah but I think it's fascinating. I think we have careers, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that, you know, you hear the word technician, mm -hmm. you don't automatically think career, mm -hmm. uh, but there are, you know, these are not, you have technicians at all grades and there's a real mm -hmm. career progression you can do. And if you came into a core facility at low, you can, you can work up through that into quite a senior level over time. In the UK, we've got something called the technician's commitment, uh, which mm -hmm. our funders are signing up to, Actually, be, I shall share the details afterwards because uh, it's very much worth looking at. Uh, I think they did speak at the facility meetings that we have. But again, this is networking and yeah. this doesn't just happen, you know. No, and, and I think it was actually Ken. So when I was in my postdoc, a job came up at UNC for an imaging core director and he was on the search committee. And I reached out and I was like, you know, I've always wanted to come back to UNC. UNC has had my heart for a long time. I love living here. I love the idea of this university and the collaborative nature. And so that was actually the first time I thought 
of a core facility job. And I got to interview, that was my first professional interview, but it was also a homecoming. Um, and I wasn't ready. I was two years in. I had actually not ever worked in a core facility besides as a user. But that started conversations with incredible core directors like Allison North, right? Because I was at Rockefeller University that got deeper than, you know, how do I use this instrument for my uses? But what is this job, right? What, what does this career path look like? And I think that planted a seed. And so it took multiple people being in the right place at the right time to get me to this job here. And, and Alison has one of the top jobs out there. Uh, Amazing. She's so incredible at what she does. Yeah. So, so I, I think it, it is. Yeah. Fantastic. So actually, there's a good question. Who have you been, who, have, who has been, or who maybe one or two, I don't know, your inspirations uh, oh, in gosh. science. And then I'm going to ask the same question, but who have you been inspirations out of work? Yeah. Okay. So that's good. So I'm going to save, you know, the ones for out of work. Um, and I think we've even talked about this a little bit more, but there's a lot of my family in that. Um, for the ones in this career, it's almost limitless to me. Um, I'm so inspired by this community, by, by the researchers, by the core facility directors, by those making the connections, um, and by those in the funding agencies. But, you know, Alison North was one of the first that I had interacted with in this field, and she does it. She contributes to her community and the global community so incredibly. Um, and I think of the cytoskeleton community that I kind of grew up in, in my research field, and they continue to be so supportive. Enrico Gratone is a lab that I worked in as a graduate student and him and Michelle Digman are incredible. Um, and I've used, you know, utilized their expertise, some in core facility and um, workshop running as in my job now. Um, I got to visit, uh, Claire Brown's facility in McGill as a job shadowing, and that was incredible. Um, and now we do these core director um, kind of joint lab meetings with Paula Montero Yopez at Harvard and Lisa Cameron at Duke. And I probably text daily with other um, core facility directors at UNC, and all of that keeps me going. Um, and without that, I don't know where I'd be without any of them, honestly. <clears throat> So what about out of work? So out of work, it really is my family. Um, I've been, I'm a third generation PhD. Um, and so it's incredible to me to think about the ways that that has shaped me and has shaped the support that I get for when I am stressed or when I am facing a way to try to balance career and life that my family is also ones I can go to with those questions and they know they have personal experience with the challenges that I've faced. Um, and that's incredible to me, but also, you know, what they came through and how academia has changed in the times. And so, especially for my grandfather who in order to get his PhD had to leave an internment camp, um, is constantly inspiring to me. And I, I now keep his photo at my desk, not just to remind me of his presence as an incredible grandfather, but just also what he went through and what kind of education and access to education and how that equates to literal freedom for my family. Um, 
is kind of embedded in this whole role and what I think of as opportunity at a university. So, so this sounds, yeah, if, if you're listening to this, you're thinking, cool, you know, you, you just must be work, work, work. <laughs> and, and, you know, your, your whole family must just be very academically minded and working solid all the time. Right? How do you balance your work and life? You know, you've got a, you've got a young family yourself. Uh, so how old are your children? Um, eight and four and a half. So eight and four and a half. So yeah. they're going to demand quite a lot of yes. time. You have, so, so is it very academic? Are you doing lots of academic stuff with it? Or, you know, what's it like? How do you balance that? So that's one thing I also love about this job is that even though, and it's the first time I felt that, where I could leave the job and it didn't matter what time it was, but when I finished what I called my work, what followed me was excitement. It wasn't stress, right? So what I like to say, and it's not constantly true, is that this job is busy, but not stressful. Um, and I do get stressed at times, but in the way it balances with my personal life, it's been much better. And I'm able to really be home with my kids. I'm able to go to the soccer practices and the dance recitals. Um, and if that's at 10 a.m., that's okay. I can schedule that. And I love that about this. We are sports fanatics. Um, so we love cheering on teams. I'm a big Tar Heels fan. I was a big Broncos fan, Cardinals from St. Louis. Um, and Soccer fan as well. And I, I don't have a huge allegiance. My family, my sister and brother-in-law are big Gunners fans. So that's okay. somewhat in there. Um, but I have yet to fully choose an allegiance uh, worldwide. But yeah, loved soccer. And it's been fun to see my child come up through now club soccer and get into that and play FIFA World Cup. And, you know. Um, so you play yeah. FIFA I do. And I'm um, still still doing Argentina. Um, that's still my team. And um, and then now coaching for the first time, my daughter's soccer, which is three and four year olds. And I'll tell you, that is on a whole nother level, but a lot of fun. Yeah, I think FIFA, you know, back in the old Sega to PlayStation one days, mm -hmm. yeah, I could play FIFA and then the controls changed and the buttons changed oh, and you get children and you're thinking why isn't that shooting <laughs> that used to shoot yep and, and I thought, I'd I tackle them from behind yeah <laughs> just too good at it you just give up and let them play it I'll, I'll play wipeout with them yep and wipeout i would say is my game the uh so that's been really fun and my my partner does not really enjoy games as much like that so that's been something i do with, with my kids once but... or twice a year when when myself and my wife we will take them on at wipeout it's it only maybe a new year's eve <laughs> typing while we're waiting for the countdown we can all engage and take it in turns to try and beat each other i would say we go about once a week almost to a olympic sporting event at UNC and that's something that we really love and that you know gets me out of the office at a very specific time and we sit and we watch baseball or fencing or um, soccer I mean women's soccer here is huge um, but also field hockey and and things that I don't know the rules for but we just love going um, and that's been really fun and so I do love that about UNC and that that's coming back now, at least on the outdoors activities we've been going to um, since the pandemic. So I was going to ask later on, but I'll ask now. So what hobbies do you do? So, so you watch sport, yeah. you play FIFA. What other hobbies <laughs> do you do? 
you actually do any sport yourself? So, I mean, not much. I, I have a colleague who's plays pickup soccer after I coach my um, daughter's game. He's been trying to get me to come, but that's been tough with the scheduling. We'll see. I haven't actually played for quite a long time. Um, I do love uh, singing, but I'm not a performer. That's more for like our family. And so lots of the things are still family oriented activities and things that we're doing with the church or, or otherwise. Um, I do like crafting. And so um, things like crocheting or knitting or jigsaw puzzles, those are still things that I really enjoy. Um, but I get kind of obsessed with them. So I can't start a project then I'll like want to do that constantly for the next 72 hours. So I have to kind of <laughs> pace it out so it doesn't totally overtake things. So you mentioned right at the start, a bit ago, one of the motivations, you're coming home with work-life balance because you're coming home and work is fun. And you yeah. sent me another picture, which I think illustrates, <laughs> which, which is yourself yeah. and a couple of others. Yes, uh, that's my team. I can't even make out what the letters are. So we're doing UNC. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. And the joke I, I, is I, I, I'll believe you. That I got them, I hired them both. Their previous positions were at Duke. And so I was, it's it's a bit tongue in cheek too, but I'm I'm really making them into tar heels um, <laughs> as much as I can. So these are your new staff then? Yes. So that has been since, you know, the funding and it's just been incredible. Um, and it's, it also is just more of a, a fun community to be in, right? When you come in and you're working together as a team. Um, and I think that's something that has been difficult for other facilities to get support from their institutions to hire more. But there is more than just more hours that you get with more staff. It really is the, the added benefit of a team working towards common goals. So how much time do you get on the microscopes now? You've got two staff that take it to enable you to do stuff possibly away from the microscope. How much time do you get on the microscopes now? Good question. Um, I've had a hard time carving out time for those consultation projects. That's one thing we've learned because the microscopes are so booked. Um, and so now I probably do about, on average, two trainings a week is probably true. And each of those are two sessions, right? So, you know, what is that? You know, 10-ish hours with a user on the scope. And then, you know, beyond that, a few hours a week, just trying to troubleshoot something here and there. But it has gone down and I do miss that. And I find I get rusty if I don't get back on there um, and have to actually acquire something in a, in, in a shorter period of time. That's like a bicycle. You never get rusty until they change the software. That's true. <laughs> and then you're stuck yes. for a short while. Uh, we've got a new microscope coming in very, very, very soon or being installed. And so I have to be in there just to get familiar with the new software interface. Definitely. Uh, but it will take an hour. Confident, yes. that's all it will take. <laughs> uh, I talk about it because the other role, so you've got the Chan Zuckerberg uh, imaging scientist and all the work around that. But you're also editor-in-chief for Biotechniques, which is a big, which is a big role. Yeah, and that's new, right? Um, so that just started this past year. Um, but it's been really fun. It's been a, a really great team to work with. And it's let me see science from a different perspective. So I'd always been the one 
trying to publish or the reviewer. Um, and it's interesting to see it from the editing side of how do we generate materials that will be most useful to people? How do we reach out to those communities who we think would benefit from this latest study? How do we frame this in a way that will be the most impact and um, draw and build that community separately? And I've seen that a lot more in the publishing world, that there's you know, more podcasts there's web versions, there's tutorials, right? Things to get that information out, as well as doing the standard print versions that we know people rely upon, right? And need to have access to. So it's it's been very interesting and really fun, right? To kind of see and interact with people then outside of my particular area of interest um, and see it like, okay, well, if I take a step back, imaging is amazing. But what are the other questions we're facing and how can I draw that to things that we're seeing in trainees questions that they constantly have, right? Um, okay. And get them to the experts. Biotechniques is, is, is a massive journal. You know, mm -hmm. certainly in the UK, it would land on our desk regularly. It's one of the few free, what was mm -hmm. free, that would do is just land on your desk and you could look at whatever was put in there publication-wise. But the, this must be, you must be taking over a very challenging time, though, because there's an explosion of online. And, and I mean an explosion of online journals that are competing and chasing people to publish with them, encouraging them, giving them incentives to publish. And, and the impact factors of, of some of those are not, not terrific. You've got, we've got the big journals that are also proliferating into subsets of the of the big title and of course everyone wants to be there because yeah and, and they that do get yeah. the at the top uh, so where does this leave biotechniques because you know you've got these established ones proliferating down and people here are going to think oh try by luck here mm -hmm. and then you've got all these down here which are exciting and new and don't have an impact factor necessarily yet so that's not so good and so where how 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 is how is it going for biotechniques and that must i don't envy you coming into that position right now so it's a difficult question because i can't see that biotechniques is finding it easy amongst this very competitive market at the moment yeah i've been very lucky in that they have made lots of structural structural changes prior to my coming on as editor-in-chief so the previous editor-in-chief was really focused on those structural details. You know, how do we market ourselves? How do we make ourselves competitive so that people will come to us, will keep reading? Um, and lots of that had been more digital content, um, but also really focusing on the science. What are those science areas that we know need more detail, right? Um, that need that added level of, you know, a specific publication to deal with these or a specific compilation. And then they brought me in more as a science, um, somebody in the field to make connections between, oh, I saw this person give a talk, right? And what they're doing is incredible and may not be published, like what I saw might not be published yet, but man, if somebody could write a protocol on what they're doing, that would help everybody, right? Um, and so, while it's been hard, Biotechniques has now seen growth in their impact factor, downloads, you know, all of kind of those metrics. And so I feel like they've already kind of pulled themselves through to redefine a little bit and kind of modernize to what 
trainees and and people working in the field need now. Um, what I like is that they're still really open to redefining. And so when I think as a core facility person about increasing the rigor and reproducibility and checklists on the publishing side, they're open to that. They're interested in seeing what that means and being responsive. Um, they just changed, they were, I think the first to change the authorship um, changes where somebody could request a change in their name um, relevant to their current name without any other required um, kind of administrative burden just to more align with their current identities. And then we saw other journals pick that up very quickly. And so I think there's room for some of those to be made on the broader scale where biotechnics has a big enough history and readership that that will then be implemented more field wide. And I am excited for that because I see those conversations happening and I think there will be more of that coming and that that will improve kind of the whole area of scientific publishing that we're kind of immersed in. So that's why we should publish in biotechnique. That's yes. the sales pitch. Yeah. You can that's right. <laughs> Amazing position to get, uh, as a very difficult time. Thinking of publications, What's your favorite publication that you have ever authored or co-authored on? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, it's so hard to think past like the most recent, right? Yeah. And I think it's hard to get past. And I think you were talking about that with uh, York, the moment that you know something will be a paper. And then when you finally see it in print, it has been through so many iterations that sometimes it's hard to muster up quite that same excitement. Um, I mean, it's hard to beat my very first paper because that one felt so personal, right? Um, and it was three different techniques. So it was quantum dot tracking, it was FRAP, and it was single molecule localization. And I loved that each one had to be acquired on a totally different system, analyzed totally differently, honestly with another mentor involved. And so it took forever to get it right. But it really, for me, emphasized how interconnected each of the methods are. And so where one is limited, the other one can come in with a complementary viewpoint. And so I still love that paper. It's hard for me to read again, because again, it was a difficult creation, <laughs> but I love it. And then I think of the most recent one too, which I really do love, which was another real collaborative venture. Uh, I, I'm glad you said you for that first paper that you did use three different things. So I was thinking, how on earth would you do FRAP with quantum dots? Yes. Yeah. Nope. That's just that's just not gonna not uh, gonna work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say it'd be a blinking nuisance, but they were really good at blinking. They were great at blinking, right? I still love that as a um, one of the names of of the techniques. I still refer to blink because to me that's immediately it's not an acronym; it just is. Um, and so I still am, am a little bit preferential to that term for a technique. I, 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 we haven't done a huge amount with quantum dots. I remember testing the, I think beats testing the, the five live from Zeiss mm -hmm. years ago. And we had quantum dots on there and the movie, it was just like looking at a twinkling night sky. We just put single quantum dots down and we were seeing the single, single quantum dots. 
and they were just blinking on and off and twinkling and you had somewhere there's there's double so it wasn't going completely dark and yeah and i lost that movie and it's such you know i need to recreate it i've got the i should be able to do it with the elira i i yes and but, chemically and physically they're just so cool right that yeah, that these things exist that will never bleach and can be activated along such a huge spectra. And I just, I do love that. And I love how it ties into the biology too. And you're thinking, wait, but this is tethered somehow. What is that doing? And um, yeah, but those I think that might have beautiful. to be our, uh, our Christmas challenge actually at the lab. I, Ooh, just, beautiful, we, we blinking. Surf. Yeah, we did surf just before one Christmas and that was really good fun. We, we didn't need surf. We had a tape, yeah. we would give surf a go, and that was really cool to try that. So, Ricardo Enriquez's stuff, and it worked a dream. That's amazing. Box, like, uh, wow, brilliant. Yeah. But yeah, I think let's get some twinkling lights going for uh, Christmas. For the holidays. That sounds perfect. Which would be really good. What would you say has been one of the most difficult times of your career so far? I say so far, because oh, yeah. you're not even halfway through your career. But so far, what's been the most challenging time? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, I was very unsure about leaving, quote unquote, the tenure track and leaving my postdoc for a job that I thought I would love, but I hadn't worked in before. Um, and I had lots of hopes and expectations, but I also knew I was going into it alone. I didn't have a staff. I didn't have, you know, I had some other core directors to rely on, but it was different. It wasn't working directly with. And so I think that was hard for me. And it was a new redefining that identity and coming back to an institution where I had an identity as a student and redefining that then as a professional um, and a more permanent role. I think all of that kind of hitting at the same time. I had a new baby. I moved and moved jobs, right? Like all three um, hit at the same time. And that was hard, but also you know, looking back, I'm like, okay, we got through that. And it took longer than I thought. I think I'd given my mind like a year and it will get easier. And it really was more like two to three. Um, it's it's so, so, so actually it's got easier. It has. Yeah. I'm doing and, I'm, and, you know, maybe part of that is that I have more staff. I have more people. Right. Um, but I also feel like I've some of those relationships are stronger now. Right. Some of them I had to build and it took more energy to kind of activate and get that started. Now I feel like there's a little bit more where if I don't invest in it every week or things like that or every day for certain relationships, that there's a little bit more leeway there, more trust that's been built um, that lets me expand in ways where now I am more unsure. Um, and kind of pull back and, and readjust. Whereas before I felt like it was just going as much as I possibly could. So the, the lab's developed, you've got more staff. The technology uh, is always changing across all the different platforms in, in across the sciences. Yeah. Uh, you know, the mass specs are constantly developing. The sensitivity, the speed is improving. Genomics, we're down to single cell. It's pushing at the, the edges. You know, microscopy is always developing and moving. Cytometry, more colours, more lasers, mm -hmm. spectrum coming into that now. But for the microscopy core that you have, 
how big a stress is it that you know your users are happy with what you have today mm -hmm. tomorrow there's a whole new technology that if you want to look deeper understand more you know it's quite good at the moment you have a blurred background and you know that that's a standard fluorescent microscope <laughs> and here i am I'm, i'm now sitting in a confocal microscope you can see my background it's all sharp yep. Yeah. You can't see what's on the pictures. And the next microscope enables you to see what's in the pictures mm -hmm. themselves. And, that, and that, so the, your users are always going to want that extra bit because then you can understand it to a greater depth. And suddenly the blurred background isn't good enough. And yeah. so how big a stress is that? And how, how we, UNC, is that supported? You have to apply for grants, to funding to get it. Are there philanthropic donors? How do you... Dealing with the expectations of getting new equipment and how big a stress is it getting new equipment? I think that's what, I mean, in the survey I got asked um, by our university administration that oversees the cores and they said, what is your biggest challenge? Getting funding to get state-of-the-art equipment was it and has been it since I have been here. Yeah. Um, for exactly the reasons you say, right? And because it is such a large investment, right? It's not something that I can just piece together from user fees. It, it takes more. Yeah, how, what's the cost? You know, of, the cost of I mean, for one money. of them was 1.2 million, right? Another is 400,000, maybe at the minimum. And I keep looking for the smaller ways and we've done upgrades to get the most out of what we have. But you know, in the back of your head, that this is limited, that there needs to be new investment. And there should be, right? Um, and, and so that's been hard. We do apply, I have been applying for grants. I wish that there was more. And I, I know that the NIH has tried to make other opportunities. I just saw this R24 come up, which wasn't necessarily for equipment to go in a lab, but for the structural support that it does. So I'm seeing some change there. Um, and that's something I've asked, you know, CZI as well to consider um, because as wonderful as it is to help fund professional development and staff, and it has been catalyzing, is we do need equipment. And with equipment, we need staff. And so it all goes together, right? And I'm interested to see how things like the Beckman Awards go through, how that changes and how that continues to be supported by institutions or other funders. Because unlike in the, I think, I'm not sure about the UK, but I think Canada and Germany, there's some funds nationally you can apply to for instruments and they even come with a bit of staff support. So, so maybe for UK, a year or two. Uh, I'm actually fortunate. I sit on a few of those funding bodies. So that is split into different ones. And uh, so I'm fortunate to sit on some of those panels and we apply to them as well. And sometimes mm -hmm. successful, sometimes not. Uh, usually it's for the equipment only. Mm -hmm. uh, but what they look quite often for is for the institutes to match the, the funds with the people because and I think this is totally the right thing to do mm -hmm. a lot of I, I hear some people say look you give us the equipment but not the people mm -hmm. if you give the people with the equipment at the end of three years the That's people what? have gone because there's been no incentive to minimize the cost to the institute if the institute puts them in they then feel an obligation to deliver and make it sustainable make a career out of mm -hmm. that post not just how it three years and that's it's that technician's commitment to get and making a financially sustainable model mm -hmm. that I, 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 I can talk all day about that that's why my that. passions is that yeah. you know 
I don't think any of us should ever be given stuff. We yeah. should be short term with an obligation to make it a sustainable post in the future because someone pays for it somewhere. Yeah. And going back to the funders, they're asking us to charge what science really costs. Don't hide it. Right. Uh, right. So it never cost the scientist money. It's costing the funders money. But if the funders aren't paying it, someone's having to pick it up. Or as we started at the start of this, you end up with four, five, six microscopes and no one to train or run them. Right. Uh, exactly. So UK is actually, I will say, UKRI, which is our government funding and through BBSRC and MRC, certainly for the life sciences, I think are really good. And we have, so like Chans, uh, like Chan Zuckerberg, so actually for those not listening or don't, not familiar with CZI, that's Priscilla and Mark Zuckerberg, so Facebook and their mm -hmm. philanthropic donations in. UK, we have Wellcome Trust mm -hmm. as well. And they have typically, uh, historically, uh, things are changing a bit at the moment, being very good supporters as well for equipment. Uh, and, and they do ask to put the staff structures into place. And it's assessed if you if you can't show that you can support it beyond the three years of service contracts, because you said there were four hundred thousand dollars to one point two million dollars. Right. What's the service contract prices on those roughly? Just just ballpark, don't be too precise. Uh, I would say at least ten to thirty K a year, right? So ten to thirty thousand dollars a year. So when you get the grant, you've got that money. And then at the end of the grant, who's paying that? So that's normally what we try to get through user fees, yep. right? But then you have to spread it out, right? On what is getting the most use versus what the service contract is the most expensive. And it's a really interesting kind of risk assessment and value proposition, I think. Uh, but what you were saying was really interesting to me because I've also talked a lot with Mark Sanders at University of Minnesota yep. about the structures he's put in place for promotion and retention of staff in core facilities. And I think that's so key, right? Um, because when a really trained person leaves and there's no job for them, right? There's no, that that impacts the whole community negatively and, and they need to have roles and opportunities for promotion and recognition of great work. And I don't think those exist currently. And I do think a lot of that does have to be at the institutional level, but if funders can put, some expectations in place we'll see them also align yeah. so there's got to be some give and take you need to see the uk uh, the technicians yeah. commitments bbsrc have wrote it explicitly the calls just come out explicitly written in on that career progression and training development I, i've got to say big thumbs up to uk have got their stuff together i'm forgetting this is a podcast so i'm just talking uh, so i'm going to ask some quick five questions they will come yep. back to others so you're a pc or mac person so I am currently a PC person, but again, go, going through the genomics um, explosion and sequencing and annotating data, I was a Mac person then in my undergraduate. And so I still miss things like the command, the Apple shift for, right, to take a screenshot and things like that. So I still have some of those lingering Prince Mac. Yeah, well, but then you have to crop it and it's just not the same. <laughs> So I still have some of those lingering Mac preferences um, and wanting to be able to just code on my computer the way that, you know, I was with a dual boot with the Unix based system. Um, but now everything's going Python. So it's it's a little bit, you know, antiquated anyway, I suppose. But yeah, officially PC, I suppose. Okay. It's always good to be PC. Uh, 
Early bird or night owl? I'm a natural night owl. If I could, my best writing would be like 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. But with the kids, that has changed. So now I tend to be in the office by 8 a.m. And that is my quietest, most productive time. So we'll see at some point when they start sleeping in, maybe I'll be able to return to my more natural tendencies. Let's see where your circadian rhythm is. Tea, tea or coffee? I'm a I'm ambivalent there. I like both. I love both. I have both behind me. I do do a coffee in the morning, but it's a very um, non-traditional coffee, right? It's like the pumpkin spice Craig, which places me in a very, um, for the coffee aficionados, not not in their, in their realm of expertise, but also love teas um, and kind of go with anything, but. Okay. Beer or wine? There, I'm more of a wine drinker. So I'm also celiac disease. So I've had to go gluten-free. That was discovered as I transitioned to my postdoc, um, but also have a pretty low alcohol tolerance generally. Um, So more of actually a hard liquor person and would prefer kind of more whiskey than either. Well, do you know what the amount of podcasts and I ask guests, it seems the Americans are really into their whiskeys. Hard liquor. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I don't know what that is. Quicker kick But out. also, you know, the very weak drinks, like the Midori Sours, I'm also um, a good fan of. Uh, so chocolate or cheese? Ooh, that's tough. Um, I think I need chocolate. Right. I love chocolate, but I also, especially with the gluten-free diet, have relied quite upon cheese. Um, I'm not quite to the like Stilson, you know, as a holiday person, but um, it would be very hard for me to cut out cheese completely. But <clears throat> chocolate is a daily need, I suppose. I would concur. <laughs> uh, so, so what's your favorite food? That's tough. Um, before before gluten-free, it was probably, um, or at least what I said it was, was a country fried steak. So we joked that my grandparents grew up in Texas and that my stomach was very Texan. I loved, you know, fried meats and gravies and things like that. Um, that's harder to reproduce, gluten-free. Fried meats and gravies. Tell me the gravy isn't fried. The gravy isn't fried, but has enough oil that I think it could be. <laughs> okay, so what's your, uh, taste-wise, what's your least favourite food? What would you go, ooh, no, about? Go to a conference Ooh. dinner and suddenly it's served in front of you and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what do I do now? Oh, that's tough. Because um, I really do love food and trying new things. <laughs> I think I'm... I have the hardest time with some exotic seafoods. So in Japan and things where the noodles were actually small fish um, and some of the more fishy tastes I've had more struggles with. Um, And maybe that's because I was a Colorado landlocked child. And so we just didn't have much. Um, And so like crab was my go-to seafood, but not like mussels and things. But my sister grew up in Colorado too and loves shellfish so i don't know maybe it's just me but that's probably where i struggle the most is like raw shellfish yeah i wouldn't shell out <laughs> on that's for sure uh what's your t- tv or book what would be your preference i love book 
Um, but I really do enjoy seeing the movie adaptations. I wonder if it's because I also like being a bit critical of it and, and noticing where they made changes, um, especially to flow or to characters. I'm like, that character didn't say that, you know, but they had to cut down or something. Yeah. Um, so we have been doing that as a family too, reading the books first and then watching the movies. But I do love just watching a movie and zoning out. So I was going to ask what your favourite movie is, but I think you've just answered that in that question. Uh, what's your favourite Christmas movie then? Ooh, Christmas movie. I used to love, I, I don't know, it's tough with the kids, right? Um, but I think in general, one that I always watch is Elf. I still really do like okay. Elf. Um, and for some reason, I think of it as a Christmas movie, but it's not, is Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> I watched a lot. It's one of those I think of as like a Christmas movie that's just on all the time that I can tune into. And if I'm flipping through and be like, oh, I'll just leave that on. That's fun. Um, but Elf, I did always enjoy. And you said that uh, you sing uh, choir wise, but what, what music? What's your taste in music? What's your favorite style? I love Broadway. I, I do um, almost any Broadway musical I love um, as well as the classics and so kind of like show tunes and it doesn't matter if it's you know really old classic show tunes or you know Hamilton and In the Heights. Um, I do I'm kind of a sucker for movie um, soundtracks and things like that. I, I okay I can't wait for the next conference and you're just going to have to slip into song at some point and then carry on with where nobody, you are. Nobody will enjoy that that's <laughs> the problem. <laughs> Still not a performer, but yeah. Okay, we are actually coming up to the hour already, yes. which I'm really cross about because there's quite a lot of <laughs> questions I wanted to ask you about. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's my fault. Uh, okay, two, two, two more questions. Who would you most like to meet and why? But that's tough. I, I think a lot of that, again, is, or I related to Jorg's, um, response to. For me, it's hard to think of just meeting someone versus like building up a relationship with them, okay. getting yeah, to know them. Influence would be to know. So my my go-to before, because it was past or present, was either an ancestor of mine who I wish, who I never met, who I'd love to ask about what that was like, like what was coming to America in 1900 like when you were a teenager. Well, you need to do um, what Delsid wants to do and build a time machine then. Right? And do that or like something in the future. Like if I'm lucky enough to have great, great, great grandchildren, what that would be and what they would see in the world. No, I'd be stressed about that. <laughs> Too much pressure. Yeah, you know, you know, you worry about your children, where they're, if they're going to yeah. get them. I don't want to worry about my great-grandchildren. <laughs> so what about the current? So I'm looking right now at the autograph I have from Mia Hamm. Um, I do find some of those who I looked up to as children um, and were so much in the limelight, even at a time when it was so different. And I wonder what that was like, right? To really excel at your field and to be put as a spokesperson for an entire nation, right? And what you what you think now about what's happening um, to those who are stepping into that role. I, I think I would be interested some in that, um, but it would be hard to choose. There's so many, so many incredible people out there. And finally, of, of your job role, which element 
do you find most exciting? Is it the teaching? Is it the using it on someone's behalf, getting those first results? Is it that I think I've got pictures uh, of, of interacting with people, training, teaching, being on the microscope, using it? Uh, or is it the, the networking, the communication side of it? Uh, so again, go back to your earlier picture, you've had that, is it the communication? Mm-hmm. Or is it the business, the, the, the mm-hmm. finances, the influence? The, the applying for funds, the writing up, what's, it's a really diverse role, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think it's honestly that it's the variety. It's that every day is different and that I can, I mean, there's external things that determine, you know, there's just more trainings today or more classes, but I can also shape it and I can write more if that's what I choose that I need more just kind of focused time. And I love that. I love that each day is different. And I love that if I'm like, I'm missing interacting with this population or I'm missing this, that I can make that happen in my day. Um, And I have the flexibility to do that. If I'm missing that troubleshooting, I can just walk into the lab and I guarantee there will be something that needs a bit of tweaking. And I can see that person take a picture and send it to their mom and be like, cool, this is what I did today. And, And see that excitement happen for them. And that when that gets to be too much, I can retract back and write or revise something or um, contribute a review and feel a little bit more focused in. Um, But I I think that really is it, that that you get to define it and get to adjust each, almost each moment. You know, like, am I gonna step out of this office or am I going to write and create something? Um, And that either way, it has value to my day-to-day job. So I can't choose. I'm taking. I'm taking a cowardly way out. <laughs> Adversity. Uh, so actually, before we actually, you, uh, there were some pictures I never showed. So actually, I, t- I guess when it comes to Broadway <laughs> musicals, this was that was probably my performance ADHD. highlight. Yep. So singing yeah. with in what was the Coney Island of Doctor Moreau. So I was a skunk human hybrid. Um, and I was really proud of my costume because we kind of had to come up with our own costumes. So we did the boa. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was basically a, a, a chorus member, but I had always been stage crew and sound crew before that. And this was the first time it was my eighth grade year that I was like, I'm going to step on to the stage. And I don't think I've ever done it since. <laughs> but Extremely well engaged. So you go from, it, was, it was fun. You go from a skunk to a... Uh, <laughs> To, do- to, to a porpoise. Yeah. So, so. so that was spring break, right? Um, high school, I think my junior, maybe my junior year when I was trying to avoid the getting letters back from all of the college ap- applications. And so it was very against what my dad would have chosen to do. Um, but we went to Cancun for, you know, a vacation and we did get to see some ruins, but not to the level that he would have preferred. Yeah. Um, and he really just, kept me distracted and my mom and happy and reading and kind of, you know, a lot of changes are coming up in life you can't control. But in the meantime, um, just kind of literally swim with the dolphins and kind of let the days go by. And and finally, because these you ah. said necklaces that are, oh God, you, you describe them because they, they yeah. look really So cool. um, this is... Our image is taken by the incredible artistic Christina Moore, who who is started in the core. 
And this was maybe in one of her first weeks in the Corps. And I was like trying to come up with some images that represented um, the interaction with neuroscience. And these are um, from a book on Ramoni Cajal's exhibits and drawings of yeah. early neuroscience. And then the necklace is my family crest. So in Japan, the family crests are typically um, geometric shapes and often round. And this is a flower. Um, and I had it made into a um, necklace, a custom necklace for my wedding. And um, have loved it and and its connection to my Japanese American past, but I love how it now interacts with kind of my career and how geometric the the images are and the cells shapes are and how it makes me think about both symmetry and dissonance in the symmetry and where that might be kind of key. So um, I love this. All of the placement was Christina's and I think she just did an incredible job with all of that. I think it's not the first time on the podcast we've seen the Cajal images because I think Jeff Lippman is a curator or guest oh, curator, wow. curator for the Cajal. Thanks, They're so incredible. Actually, it's worth seeing that. We are at for time I'm afraid Michelle so yeah. thank you very much for joining me today everyone who's listened or watched thank you very much for joining the microscopies don't forget to subscribe to whichever channel you're listening to so don't miss the next one Michelle I think of all the things the most important message I think today is if you're a PhD if you're a postdoc there's a career that's a different path than academic tenure that is equally challenging equally exciting and with the same career prospects and I think anyone who's not in that part, hopefully you've learned about the expense and the difficulties in delivering technology to health science science. And if you've got loads of money in your pocket, like Chan Zuckerberg, and they're putting it in, do you know what? One of the best places you can invest is in a microscope or technology, because then you don't just help solve one question of cancer. It helps address lots of questions of cancer, disease, all sorts. And it's really equipment that enables everyone to use it. So anyway, Michelle. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.